Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Vaccine development and concerns about COVID-19 spread in the White House. We've heard all of that over the last several days. Vaccine development over the last weeks uh, has been always on the front burner. And then there's the question, is injecting healthy human volunteers with COVID-19 a step we should or we must ultimately take to test the efficacy of any vaccine in order to accelerate public distribution, the so-called human challenge test? Professor Peter Hotez is back with us, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Health in Houston and co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital for Vaccine Development. Professor Hotez, thank you very much uh, for the time. And where do we stand today, May 9th, 2020, as far as development of an effective vaccine against COVID-19 is concerned? And you must be tired of that question. Well, you know, there's a lot of interest and unfortunately not a lot of information uh, coming out of um, uh, out of the U.S. government to know where we stand on it all. We're just mostly it's kind of a free for all of press releases from the biotechs and the pharma companies and and um, and information that we're publishing. So it, it, it's probably uh uh, daunting to try to figure out for anyone wh- where we actually stand. It looks as though we're probably going to have upwards of a couple of dozen vaccine candidates in the U.S. move through various stages of clinical trials, and then over the next year collect enough safety and efficacy data, data that it actually works, uh, and to the point where we can potentially license uh, one or two or three vaccines for the general public. When I hear COVID-19 repeatedly referred to as a smart virus, what does that mean? Uh, Well, all viruses are pretty smart. That's how they've evolved. Uh, Evolution makes you really smart. Um, uh, So most viruses are pretty ingenious the way they infect uh, humans and, and how they cause disease. I don't specifically know what they're referring to as smart. This one is particularly diabolical because it has two faces to it. It has the one face where it's making people very sick, causing strokes and pulmonary emboli and severe lung disease and heart disease and putting you in the ICU or causing sudden death on one group. And the other group, it uh, it people have handled it pretty well. They are either of no or minimal symptoms and they're walking around shedding virus to spread it around the, the community. And, and that's why we're in such a difficult space because uh, it's very hard to control a virus that behaves that way, as opposed to the original coronavirus pandemics from SARS and MERS, where you got, and you remember from Canada and Toronto and back in 2003, mm-hmm. if you had it, you were you were sick as a dog and you went right to the hospital. 
Uh, so you didn't have a lot of time to spread it around the community, but this one has that other dimension to it. So if we look at that, the information you just described, and all of the other information, as you said, that just keeps flowing forward, and you're trying to understand what if it makes sense and what doesn't, what are your thoughts on the reopening of society? Uh, In your state of Texas, a hair salon owner was jailed because she opened carefully her business in order to feed her children and her employees the same. A judge ordered the salon owner, as you well know, Professor, to apologize for her actions or be jailed. Are you confident it's time to move forward and allow society to reopen? Well, you know, my bias is that in the U.S. we throw too many people in jail. I think uh, we've got the largest incarcerated population anywhere in the world. Um, so that, but that's that's probably not what you're asking about. I I think what we're what uh, you know I think we're at the point now where people are just getting so frustrated with the prolonged social distancing. Yes. And people are in different stages, right? Some people have to physically show up in their workplace to get a paycheck. And they're in a tough spot because they can't provide for their families, and uh, it's devastating. Uh, Others, you know, have the luxury uh, of doing some of their work from home, uh, like I do. So that's – so there's – there's there's a, a class aspect to this which is uh, concerning. The big, in, I mean, it's in some ways it's sort of moot. The governor, for instance, in Texas has already said, "Look, we're going to start opening up the economy." And even though the models coming out of Seattle and elsewhere say we should social distance all the way through the month of May, that horses left the barn. So that that's not going to happen. Then the question is, how do we do it wisely to to maximize protection in the workplace because that's what I'm worried about now. People are going to start getting sick from their asymptomatic COVID colleagues uh, as, as they go back to the workplace. So do we have sufficient testing? Do we have adequate what we call contact tracing that is identified? You know, once someone's identified as being positive on a diagnostic test, can we get enough people there to identify the contacts in the context of the contacts. Most cities, the answer is no, we don't have that in place yet. Do we have, you know, an app-based system of syndromic surveillance? The answer is no, not for most places. Do we have uh, a good system of public health communication, talking to the public on a daily basis at the local level? The answer, again, is no. So the problem is we're opening up the economy without a commensurate uh, plan for how we're going to build up public health, and therefore I'm worried that any economic recovery uh, that we begin will be evaporated again by the late summer or fall, and that will okay. also be heartbreaking and have a lot of uh, political implications yes. as well. Professor Hotez, thank you very much for the time. I always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thanks. We have more questions than we have answers, but we desperately, desperately want answers. Thanks again. Thanks again. Professor Peter Hotaz joining us from uh, Houston, Texas. Terrible story out of Georgia. It's uh, it's just so disturbing. If you've seen the video, and I've seen it several times, 22-year-old Ahmad Arbery, um, a jogger, black, uh, shot and killed by a white father and son who claimed they thought Arbery was a burglary suspect. And the video of the shooting was hidden for weeks, and now murder charges have been laid against Gregory and Travis McMichael in that case. And uh, Gregory McMichael, longtime police officer and investigator for the uh, 
for the district attorney in uh, in uh, part of uh, Glenn County in Georgia. Joining us on the program, we're glad to have him back, Paige Pate, criminal trial lawyer in Atlanta, the top 100 criminal trial lawyers in America, and uh, listed among America's super lawyers for the last 11 years. <clears throat> Mr. Pate, thank you very much for the time. And as a criminal lawyer, what was your immediate reaction to seeing the phone video of the shooting death of Mr. Arbery? Well, it's great to be with you again, Roy. Uh, you know, like most people, I was concerned that, that the video did not uh, really paint a, a good picture, obviously, for the people who are charged with murder. I, I don't think it helps their argument uh, that they were making a citizen's arrest, and I don't think it helps their argument that they were acting in self-defense. What is the uh, Georgia law, what does the Georgia statute um, define as, as uh, self-defense? What are the parameters? Well, it's somewhat vague, but basically you can use deadly force to defend yourself or some other person who's with you against somebody who's presenting an imminent threat of causing death or serious harm to you. So it's a reasonableness type of analysis. I can only use such force as is absolutely necessary to stop somebody who's an imminent risk of using that kind of force against me. Uh, with Mr. Arbery having been running in the opposite direction, and uh, Gregory and Travis McMichael having had to get into a truck, their truck to intercept him, get in front of him, uh, it, does that not mute the self-defense argument? Well, it makes it very difficult, um, especially since Mr. Arbery was not armed in, in any way whatsoever. Now, the argument from the other side is going to be, well, uh, you know, we had the shotgun, we, we were armed, we were there to try to catch him and detain him for police because we suspected him in a burglary, and the only reason he got shot is because he rushed us and tried to grab the shotgun out of Travis's hand. So that that's going to be their defense. Just not so sure how that's going to play out in court. The fact that the video wasn't available for quite some time would not help either, would it? Or does that reflect more on the on the on law enforcement in Glenn County than it would on on the on the McMichaels? Well, Roy, that that's a totally separate story here, and also a very interesting and, and concerning one. Uh, the video was available to the district attorney's office and law enforcement, and they saw the video and initially still decided that they were not going to charge anyone. It was only until that video became public when it was released by a lawyer who was, while not representing the McMichaels, was being consulted by the McMichaels. And he released the video, it became public, and then... You know, within the span of just a couple of days, the arrests were made. Did it surprise you, or does it surprise you, that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, I believe they're the ones who laid the uh, the felony murder charges, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but does it surprise you that they did that within 36 hours when local authorities had 10 weeks uh, of, uh, of time with that particular case? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I have to uh, congratulate you. I mean, you're very well informed for a case that's in Georgia when you're in Canada, but that was a very unusual development. And what normally happens, and this was what was announced initially, the district attorney was going to wait until the next grand jury could meet and could consider possible charges. But given the current environment and our coronavirus restrictions down here, that was not going to be for many months. 
So the GBI gets involved to do an investigation, and like many people, I thought that was going to take months. I mean, they've got to talk to witnesses, they've got to look at the video, they've got to do forensics. So I was surprised when they brought charges as quickly as they did. Where does uh, citizens' arrest law come into play in, in Georgia, Mr. Pate, if it does in this particular case, or where might it? Well, I mean, that's one of the issues that the first district attorney raised when he made uh, his opinion known that he did not think criminal charges should be brought. Georgia has a statute, many states do, that gives a private citizen the authority to detain someone and call the law enforcement when they have direct personal knowledge that that individual has committed a crime and is escaping. It does not talk about the use of force, and in fact, Georgia law is clear that you cannot use excessive force in making that arrest. I am certain that the defense will try to use that here and say, look, they thought this guy was involved in some burglaries, and there is some evidence to suggest he may have been. But at the end of the day, even if they have a right to try to stop him and detain him, I don't think that gives them a right to chase him down in a pickup truck with firearms and then engage in the struggle that they did. Um, the statement has been made repeatedly, and uh, I know you've heard it. You're, you're in Georgia. We're hearing it up here in Canada. The, the specter of, of race. And one of the lawyers for Mr. Arbery has said, there's one law for black Americans and another law for white Americans. Would you address that, please? And, and Georgia does not have a, a hate crime law either, does it? It does not. It had a hate crimes law for a very short period of time, but it was struck down by our state Supreme Court because, unlike other states, Georgia left its law very vague. Um, the General Assembly in this state is considering a new hate crime statute. Sounds like now the governor supports it, so we may see a law like that in Georgia before too long. As far as race, um, you know, there's a lot we don't know about this case. Uh, the GBI may have more evidence about the motives that were involved, what may have been said before. What I, I really think motivated the police to wait so long to charge them was the relationship that Mr. McMichael had with that department from his years of service as a law enforcement officer and an investigator. There have been many problems within the Glenn County Police Department relating to allegations of corruption, uh, covering up um, evidence that would have been helpful to people being charged, and perhaps the GBI is going to be looking into more than simply this case. So I don't know that it's as much racism as it is potential corruption. One more question for you, Mr. Pate. What's the process now? What, what happens next? Well, the McMichaels made a very quick appearance in front of a judge by video conference um, on Friday just to be told what they're charged with. They're being held without bond now, but they are entitled to a bond hearing, and so that'll take place probably within the next week or so. They'll then be released or held in custody, waiting on that grand jury determination of whether to formally indict them with murder charges. Mr. Pate, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you again, and I hope we can uh, follow up with you on this case. Absolutely. Thank you, Robert. Thanks so much. Uh, Paige Johnson & Church is the uh, law firm in Atlanta, one of America's premier criminal personal injury and whistleblower protection law firms, again, based in Atlanta, and Paige Pate is listed among America's super lawyers. 
and uh, listed to America's top 100 trial lawyers by the National Trial Lawyers Association. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. It's not easy being a politician. As my next guest knows, he's no longer a politician, but he was the Attorney General, Solicitor General for the uh, province of Ontario for quite a number of years. Michael Bryant is the Executive Director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and uh, we're going to talk to Mr. Bryant about the issue of fines being issued for contravening pandemic regulations and measures, uh, emergency measures. Those fines are closing in on $6 million, and that includes fines given a homeless people what's the point of giving a multi-hundred dollar fine to um to a homeless person how's that going to be paid i i don't get it uh mr brian good to talk to you again thank you for the time and i i'm guessing you don't miss politics all that much oh i feel like i'm still in it because i'm uh except now i'm telling politicians what they should and shouldn't be doing instead of being told what i shouldn't shouldn't be doing so uh i i feel very lucky to have this job and i'm really glad to be in your show again well, it's good to talk to you again, and uh, you're on. Uh, you're you're with the good guys now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so, so I saw a, a photograph, and this one spoke to me, and I'd like your thoughts on it. Maybe you've seen it as well. And it's police patrolling on horseback in Calgary, and the idea is to enforce the physical distancing and the regulations that were put in place for the uh, for the pandemic. What does it say to you? How do you respond as the executive director of the CCLA? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm way off base here to the to the to the visual of police patrolling in the parks for uh, at, at this time. Yeah, I think it's an abuse of power. Uh, I uh, remember the photos from the October crisis in 1970, and there's a famous picture of a of a little girl. Uh, walking up the stairs and there's a, a tank in the foreground and a soldier in the background. Now in that, in that case, that was, um, a public order crisis, uh, certainly in the province of Quebec. And, um, you know, after nine 11, um, th- there was a, a threat of a public order crisis, but this pandemic has never been a public order crisis. It's always been a public health crisis. And while I understand that uh, governments have the authority to uh, try and um, change people's behavior in a way that uh, conforms to the the best advice from uh, public health officials, that doesn't mean that you ought to be punishing people or, or otherwise to turn this into a public order crisis. And when I see uh, police, especially on horseback, and I see um, mayors calling on um, on bylaw officers to show no lenience and to enforce these laws. I see governments and bylaw officers, anyways, who have mixed up the means with the ends. Uh, and the point of this was never about public order and social distancing. Social distancing was the means to the end of being safer. 
and you don't you don't police and punish people and ticket people uh, for uh, walking close to someone else. There, there's nothing inherently harmful about that that would require law enforcement to get involved. Uh, instead, police and bylaw officers could be used, as was uh, recommended by the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. Instead, they could be used to educate the public, disperse people, warn people, and only as a last resort, find them. But $6 million in fines, that's, that's not last resort. That's first resort. And I, I think it's the, it is the biggest abuse of process that has arisen out of uh, the biggest abuse of process and largest abuse of power that has arisen out of the COVID pandemic. You know, when I saw the horses, I saw the police on horseback, my first thought was, that's used for riot control. Exactly. exactly. And there were no, there's no riot. Well, so, so this is just it. And you know what? You make a really, really good point, which is if, in fact, uh, you know, some uh, genius decided to host a race in the middle of a pandemic, uh, yeah, then, then you know, maybe the horses show up. If there was um, a uh, some rioting on the streets uh, and looting going on, uh, then that would be something. But that's not what's going on at all. The the the, the thing that uh, drove people crazy enough that they called into all the snitch lines and the 311 uh, voice mailboxes and called all their politicians, that really was just plain old public anxiety over COVID, and they decided to pour it out into those voice mailboxes. And it was really up to politicians to say, you know what, it's not in the public interest to turn this into into uh, a public order crisis because we don't have a public order crisis. Like a few people on a swing set, that is not rioting in the streets. So put the horses away, uh, you know, put the bylaw officers away, um, uh, or at least take away their ticket books and disperse them out to tell people what the rules are because that's the other side of it, of course, is... Most people don't know exactly what the rules are because they were exactly, made up yeah. very yeah. quickly. They're different in some regions. So, you know, if you're in Hamilton, they, they might be a little bit different than in Toronto. I know in Aurora, uh, all the parks are closed. And uh, Toronto parks are open for traveling through but not recreating in. And you tell me the difference between somebody recreating in and walking through a park if um, – for a moment, they just are standing there. Are, are they recreating? I mean, it, it gets absurd fast. It does, you know, and, and this program airs uh, across much of Canada. And so I will hear from somebody in British Columbia mm-hmm. who is uh, detailing what they're, you know, what they're supposed to do and, and, uh, and telling me uh, whether they agree or disagree. And then I'll hear from somebody in Alberta or Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, and uh, but what I don't hear, Mr. Bryant, is a general level of lack of cooperation. Most people have been extremely cooperative with 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 authorities in their calls for physical distancing and social distancing, if you will. And and people have done it voluntarily because they get it. But to, when I saw the police, when I saw the horses, it just it just it just absolutely sent the wrong message. In so many different ways, uh, uh, and and you know, I, I I'm from Victoria, BC originally, and so I I'm in touch with family and friends um, out there, and um, you know, sometimes uh, uh, 
walks along the beach are allowed, sometimes not. But my understanding is, by and large, the, the bylaw officers will just tell people, yeah, you know what, uh, we're, we're, we're asking people to, to stay away from the beach. And mm-hmm. some days are, they, they say, yeah, no, you're fine. Now, now, that makes a lot of sense, that they can tell people what the current rules are. Um, well, in Winnipeg, also, uh, I want to say they are getting compliance, to your point. And they haven't handed out any tickets. You know, like Winnipeg asked their bylaw officers to be called ambassadors, and they inform people, and they warn people, and they disperse people, but they don't. It's the way to do it. It's the way to do it. We have about a we have about a minute left, Mr. Bryan. What are you suggesting? What is the CCLA suggesting to people who receive these tickets? And they're saying, do I have to now go and at this time particularly go and pay a five, six, seven, eight hundred dollar fine? Well, the the laws in most provinces. Uh, are unclear as to whether or not the um, regular um, timetable is in place. So in other words, normally in most jurisdictions, you have between two and four weeks before you have to respond to one of these tickets. It's a short timeline, but we do that because there's, you know, uh, if you think about traffic tickets and parking tickets, you know, we can't give people six months to decide what to do. Fair enough. But uh, as you said, you can't do anything uh, to release these tickets. And so they, 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 in fact, should not be, uh, no no timelines or deadlines should kick in right now. I know that's the case in Ontario, but some municipalities are, uh, don't agree, and they are enforcing it. So, you know, okay. I'm suggesting to people that they need to do their best to, unfortunately, call up municip- their, wherever they got the ticket from, and, and maybe when you get the ticket, ask them, how do I fight them? And then... Um, uh, when this is all said and done, uh, I would expect that there be some, there may be some legal actions uh, to try and have them wiped out. And certainly, CCLA, um, at the appropriate time, is going to go to authorities and um, seek uh, amnesties. Uh, okay. Because now is not the time to do it. But I think that this this whole business of the policing pandemic has been a real. They've really botched it up, and so they need to fix it. Good talking to you again. Thank you for the time. Thank you very much. Michael Bryant is the executive director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, the former attorney general for the province of Ontario. Sometimes you just have to grab yourself by the, you know, by realism and say, how long has this been? It's just a matter of weeks for our, our world to literally have changed. And we're all coming to grips with it. And as the weather gets warmer, the desire is to get out. And provinces are starting to reopen. There is a, an agreement, a fundamental agreement between the federal government and the provinces on how it should be done. But, you know, we talked to provincial premiers, and they're going ahead with their plans, as they should, um, and as they will. You can uh, go to the web pages of any of the provinces and see what they're doing and uh, how they will roll out uh, the reopening of, of their particular jurisdictions. A lot of questions as well about what's going on with COVID-19 and what lies ahead as far as testing is concerned. Um, questions raised by ICU doctors in the United States, particularly about how COVID-19 is behaving. I'm sure you've seen that, heard it. Some doctors saying with oxygen levels far too low to be able to function normally. Some patients are having conversations with doctors before they are intubated and placed on respirators. So I've been in touch with uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh about that, and Dr. Bogosh um, wrote an op-ed uh, for Forbes.com, and it's titled, "Not uh, It's Not Hopeless, These Doctors Explain What COVID-19 Has in Common with Diseases. 
There were two other doctors involved in writing writing the op-ed. I'm trying to cover a lot of territory here in my introduction, so why don't I get at it? And uh, say once again, thank you to Dr. Isaac Bogosh, Associate Professor at the University of Toronto in the Department of Medicine and an infectious diseases specialist uh, with Toronto General Hospital. And um, Dr. Bogosh, good to talk to you again. Great to talk to you too, Roy. My introductions are getting longer and longer and longer. <laughs> I love them, though. It's just such a good buildup. I mean, you touched on, you covered a lot of ground. I feel like we have... Uh... Lots to catch up on this week. We, we do have a lot. And, and it's just because so many things, uh, new things happen, seem to happen every week. We have the unanswered questions from the last six weeks, and then we get to Saturday or Sunday, and here's another five or six days of new development. So can we just get at this issue of, no, let's hold on. Let's hold, hold off on this for a sec. Let me ask you about the whole issue and your thoughts on reopening of societies. Last weekend you said to us that you thought it was a good idea for provinces to open and municipalities to open parks and to open uh, public space, open public space, and let people get out. Uh, it's starting to happen. Ontario today saying the provincial parks will open. Do you still feel that way, given what's happened over the last week? Yeah, I, I really do. I mean, I think we have a good understanding of this, a good understanding of this virus, not a full understanding of this virus, but we know how people get it, by and large, and we know how it's transmitted. And, you know, it's pretty safe to say that if you're outside and two meters away from other people, you're just not going to get this virus. The risk is, of course, nothing is 100 or 0 percent, but the risk ranges from zero to negligible. So, you know, I think it's, a, you know, obviously we still have to have restrictions. Obviously, we have to be careful. Obviously, we have to slowly uh, open up the economy. But in terms of going outside and enjoying green space, provincial parks, city parks, national parks, you name it. I think we can do that in a completely safe manner. You know, if people are starting to cluster together, that's an issue. But, it's you know, I don't think that's going to be a problem if we're out of doors. And good luck trying to stop people from getting out in the springtime. Yeah. You know what? That's a really good point because on I, there's a few reasons for this. One is, you know, we know that the, the science is pretty sound. The risk is obviously low. But if you impose these public health restrictions and say, you know, don't go outside, stay home, and people are people are smart, by and large, people know how, to, how this is transmitted. People know that if they're physically distancing, even if they're outside in the park, they're still not going to get it. And now people are practicing civil disobedience, right? Because people are out and about in the parks anyway. And, you know, yeah. when we're thinking about COVID-19, we're going to have to enact a lot of public health policy that sometimes is challenging to adhere to. And is, and is, of course, you know, not aligned with economic prosperity. We need tremendous public buy-in. If you're telling people not to go out into the parks and they're going out into the parks, they're, you know, disobeying these public health policies, do you think they're going to have buy-in for the more stringent public health policies? No, really definitely not. you got to have the people on board. And, you know, I think it's time to open the parks. And, of course, lots of parks are being opened. Ottawa opened up yep. municipal parks. As you said, uh, provincial parks are opening up. This is, a, this is the right thing to do. A few weeks ago, and I'm not going to get this police officer into trouble, I know. I, w- I rode over to a provincial park that's not far from where I live. Uh, on my bicycle. I don't know if I mentioned this. I did mention it on Calgary and Edmonton Radio this morning. And uh, there were Ontario Provincial Police Cruisers just inside the park. They have a little building beside the kiosks where you pay to get into the park. And I rode in on my bike, and park is closed, and I said to two of the police officers, is it okay if I go for a ride in here? So they took a look at me. I'm not 20 years of age. I'd like to be. Um, <laughs> and, and the officer said, you go ahead, sir. 
enjoy your ride. And I thought, that is a sensible response. I might have seen five or six other people in the park, Dr. Bogosh. I saw more deer than I saw people. But if you say no and no and no, and you start handing out uh, these $800 fines, which we're going to talk about in the next hour, you will start to get public pushback. And if you can't get people on side, if people don't buy in, then you don't have a policy. End of story. Yeah, I agree. But you know what? If we rewind a couple of months or however long we've been in this lockdown, I I, I completely agree with having them locked down in the first place. I mean, that was a different era. That was a different time. I know it seems like light years away and it was only about a month and a half away or a month and a half ago. I think it was the right policy at the right time. But since then, we have a better understanding of the virus. We have a better understanding of what physical distancing is. I think we're better aligned as a as a country and as as a community to you know stay safe and, and we know what to do. And I think you know good policies adapt with data, and and I think we can adapt this policy and, and update this policy and get outside and do it safely. So I have the controversial issue to, to talk to you about, but I'm going to sit on it for just a moment and ask you about this. The former CDC director is predicting that things are going to become much worse in the United States. And I'm wondering, in second wave, third wave maybe, um, where does that come from? Is that science or is it educated guess? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, the mo- there's modeling, which we know is far from perfect. It's helpful, but it's just one piece of a much larger puzzle. And then they factor in, you know, looking at how they're, what they're, how they're doing, the public health infrastructure they have in place, their healthcare system that they have in place, how it's been functioning so far, and looking at patterns of how the virus is transmitting within the state. So between much, you know, lots of separate shreds of data, uh, sprinkling a bit of opinion, I think that's how they come to that uh, that conclusion. And then there's the, there was a video on a YouTube called Plandemic, and uh, in that in that particular video, there are accusations made that um, um, that this is really all a conspiracy. What do you say? Okay, let's let's do let's do this one at a time. First, the you know the people with low oxygen levels. I don't think yeah, because I don't think these are entirely related. One is uh, with the low oxygen levels. It's really neat. I mean, uh, you know, it's not. Uh, I think the it's not unusual to see this. I mean, let me let me rephrase that. It's not unheard of to see this. There's something called a walking pneumonia. There's a few different types of pneumonia. There's something called a walking pneumonia where people are literally walking around that's why it's called a walking pneumonia and uh you know they don't look all that unwell because they're still able to walk around but when you get a chest x-ray and get the oxygen saturation probe on them uh the numbers are not really aligned with how the person is is looking and you know these people should not be walking around and we've known about walking pneumonias for decades or probably longer so you know of course i'm not saying that's the same thing as covid19 uh, it's not. You can you can get to the same outcome through a different mechanism. But so I, I'm sorry. Maybe I, I just didn't I just didn't do this correctly. How, what are you hearing, doctor? Say and the and the and the uh, the doctor who's in that pandemic video is Dr. Judy Mikovits, uh, and yeah. she, I okay. believe so she's a, she's a scientist, right? I, yeah, I don't so know enough about her. The pandemic. So the sure. pandemic issue is is total crap. I mean, just to put it bluntly, I had a look at it. And, you know, I, I get really upset when I see stuff like this, because what you do is you put in some shreds of truth. You have a slickly edited video, video 
And then you drop a lot of misinformation, pseudoscience, partial truths, and try broadcast this to the world. And sadly, people, many people are going to watch this. And, you know, these are well-meaning people that, that uh, might not know any better. And, and they'll come away thinking that this is reality and this is some reflection of the world around them and, and truth. And this is just, this is absolute garbage. I mean, we can go, for, I, I wish we had more time because like we could just debunk point after point after point. The first point that I, I, we don't have to get into it in detail, but we should debunk that this Judy Mikovits is some well-renowned scientist to begin with. She, she actually isn't. I mean, she hasn't done that much in the, in the realm of science and her, her biggest uh, achievement was uh, thinking that she came up with a viral solution to chronic fatigue syndrome, and uh, this was completely debunked and retracted from uh, medical journals and has been debunked actually several times. So, like, she's not the scientist that she claims to be. I mean, she's still a scientist, but she's not of the, uh, you know, ilk that she claims to be. And, I mean, these are unfortunate conspiracy theories that are just not correct and i think people that watch this should be should keep their bs detector on high alert because you're getting fed mounds of it with this video so what's the reality then and you wrote the piece uh with with two colleagues or two other doctors you know uh for forbes so what's what's the response what what did you what are you saying in response scientifically okay so the, the piece i did with forbes is, is slightly different from uh, from debunking uh, this this pandemic video, the piece I did with Forbes basically talks about the features of COVID nineteen uh, are unique in that you know we're seeing a lot of interesting signs and symptoms of the disease that are all clustered together. So the pre symptomatic spreading, the asymptomatic spreading, the degree of you know how people can uh, be talking to you but have low oxygen levels. I mean we know that this happens in other infections. It just happens to a much greater extent. In, in COVID-19. So that, that was the neat thing that we did in Forbes, just sort of debunking uh, people saying, we've never seen this before. Yeah, we have seen these features of as part of infections before, but the unique feature here is that it's all clustered with one type of infection. With regards to the pandemic issue, I mean, th this video, if people have watched it, I, I mean, if you haven't watched it, I don't recommend you seeing it because you're just gonna come away either angry or misinformed both. Um, but, uh, but essentially, uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories in here about, you know, was this virus, you know, genetically modified in, in certain labs? Uh, you know, she talks about her, um, you know, that, uh, you know, wearing masks makes it worse and activates the virus. Like, there's just a lot of weird things in here that aren't really aligned with science. She talks about, you know, um, closing beaches because there's something in the soil and the sand that has healing, it might have healing microbes that can help this virus. Like, it's just, it's kind of Well, I, if I, I watched it. I thought she said that uh, beaches shouldn't be closed because the microbes could help you overcome the Correct. virus. Pardon me. Right, right. Because she talked about healing microbes in the ocean and salt water. I mean, mm -hmm. that's not clear. Which I, like, I just don't understand it. Like, it's not... No, I hear the frustration yeah. in your voice. I absolutely yeah, hear the frustration yeah. in your voice. So what do we, what do we take? What's our takeaway? I'm sorry? No, I was going to say, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Dr. Borgas. With, with so much, uh, there, there are plenty of good resources where you can get high quality data and, right. and, and good information. And then you have something like this where, you know, sadly, people are going to watch this 
And, and, and I'm talking about well-meaning people who are going to watch this, who are just truly trying to learn a little bit more about the world around them and about this epidemic that's affecting all of us. And they're going to come away with, you know, misinformation by hearing pseudoscience, false beliefs mixed in with some, some truths. And it's just, it's really unfortunate. We always talk about, you know, the amplification of misinformation. This is it. I mean, YouTube took it down. For YouTube to take down a video because of misinformation, uh, you know, the, they don't really do that all that often, is my understanding. But this must have been really bad that they, they decided to do that. I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really a waste of time. You know, there's plenty of other places to get good information from. Okay. At all costs. And I, I brought it up with you off the air and on the air because there's so much attention being paid to it. And I, I wanted to hear your, your, your views. And thank you for sharing that with us. Now, we only have a minute here. So what's our takeaway this week? From what's happened over the last uh, numbers of days, we know that reopening is starting to take place. It's happening to a greater extent in the United States than Canada. But what's your takeaway this week? Yeah, I think uh, I think Canada's gradually starting to reopen. I think we're doing so appropriately. I'd like to see a better surveillance plan in place, a better diagnostic plan, and a better contact tracing plan in place for us to do this safely. I still think it can be done, and it can be done well. It's just, uh, you know, I think Canadians have to be aware that while we might slowly move forward, if there's an unacceptable high number of cases of COVID, uh, then we'll likely have to regress a little bit as well. So it's not just going to be a linear path forward. If we want to be successful in a, in a more linear path forward, we need better diagnostics, more contact tracing, and, and a surveillance system okay. in place. And we're, we only have 10 seconds here. We're, we're not going to get rid of COVID-19. It's not going to suddenly disappear from the global radar. It sure isn't. We need a vaccine and uh, 90-ish teams working on this. Uh, and so hopefully we have some uh, early results in July, uh, June. We'll have some early results from the right. more advanced teams. Dr. Bogosh, thank you so much for the time, as always. Great chatting with you, Roy. Take care. Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.